welcome to another episode of The Impolite Psychologist. So when I was growing up, the cops where I grew up had two jobs. One of them was to supervise construction sites, and the other job was to guest speak at the elementary school about why we shouldn't use drugs. And pretty much, I know there were more than two police officers in my town, but we all knew two police officers by name. And that's sort of the deal on where I grew up. But today's episode of The Impolite Psychologist is actually going to be a little bit different than normal. I will be interviewing an officer not from a small town and somebody who has sort of a bigger job than the cops that I knew growing up. So welcome to my show and to a cop and a psychologist walk into a bar. Happy to be here. (laughs) Thanks for the wine too. Cheers. Cheers. So just tell the listeners a little bit about um, the kind of agency you're from and your experience and what you do. So I am work at a very large agency, a large metropolitan agency, I guess people say, to stay out of trouble. Uh, I've done most of, my, most of my time in the lower income neighborhoods, a very large lower income neighborhoods, but I've been all over the city as well. I've been working for about 26 years, pushing 27. And I guess the secret is that I'm actually not a full-time officer, I'm a reserve, which in this state means I'm a full peace officer with all the same training, but I get to do it for free as a volunteer. Great. And so when we met, we met at a time where I had finished working in juvenile hall and then I was working in a men's jail at the time. And although it seemed like we had different backgrounds and were from different backgrounds, I quickly came to realize that our experiences were quite the same and not just because I had been working at the time in the jail and the juvenile hall, but also because we always were sort of working with the same people throughout our careers. And that's something that's sort of come up recently. There's a lot of talk about cops not being educated enough about mental health. And just sort of listening to people talk about it, it always feels like people look at cops as almost being even less educated about mental health than the general population, which is odd to me when people talk like that, because since the day that we met, it has always seemed like you were very aware of mental health issues, as were your colleagues. And I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I think most nowadays, in most any agency, right, even the small town we're here from, the cops, who do you deal with? You deal with the people who have problems, who have trouble. Right. The people who have they, they the reason that they act out and the police have to be called is they have problems. Right. Generally mental, emotional, everything, all in, you know, drugs, everything on top of each other, family, relationships, everything. And cops see that. And you have a choice as a cop. Right. Are you just going to ignore it and be mean to people and lose your job or be bad at your job? Or are you going to notice it and think, hey, which I'd say the vast, vast 99 percent majority of cops do is, 
hey, wow, that guy has a problem. I can't deal with it the same way I would deal with someone else. What can I do different, right? And that's where the training kicks in, depending on the department. That's where your own knowledge kicks in. That's where the field training officer kicks in. Everything can't be a fight. You know, it's not like the movies. It's not TV. You can't fight everybody or else you'll just get tired or fired or both. And you need to understand how people are acting. Take that to heart and use your training, your smarts, the knowledge from your other officers to help deal with people in a way that makes sense. So when you were a young person, because you've been doing this for a very long time now, um, and when you were first being trained or coming out of the training academy and you were headed out to the streets for the first <laughs> time, did that surprise you at all, the, the mental health issues, or did you expect it, or how was it? I mean, we were trained for it, right? Just like anything, what you learn in school is different when you hit the streets. I grew up on TV shows and the movies, of course, right? I knew it couldn't be like that, but that's, you know, what I was thinking in my head. And you expect, like, criminals and a bad guy and evil, and you want to fight evil and, you know, get the bad guy. But once you get, and you get a sweat, you get educated on that a little bit in the academy, but once you get out there and you start meeting bad guys, you someone who committed a crime, a robbery, a domestic violence, a, a, you know, a traffic accident, whatever, you meet these people... And they're not evil. They don't have a horns coming out of their head. They're not wearing a red cape, you know. And, and in fact, they may even come off as nice, right? You know, they're nice to the guy with the badge and the gun. But you also, you may see them in both ways. You see them at nice and then see them act like caged animals once you go to arrest them or vice versa. They're fighters and they did something horrible and you grab them up. And once they're in handcuffs, they're perfectly nice and start being nice to because they're used to it or they're trying to work you. So yeah, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's just kind of sad, right? You get out there, you're not dealing with all the best people. You're dealing with people having a bad day who are already in a bad place. And so you just got to take that into account when you're dealing with them day in, day out, all through your shift. And I remember um, <clears throat> before I worked in the environments I had mentioned earlier, when I was just sort of working in mental health facilities. I worked in some inpatient programs. And as a mental health clinician, there were people that myself and my colleagues had sort of prayed that certain people would end up in prison or jail because we knew they'd get three meals a day we knew they'd have a place to sleep that was safe. We knew that somebody would monitor their medication and we actually would hope that would happen for some people because otherwise they had a lot of trouble surviving on their own. I mean, yeah. I mean, when the without all the same mental health facilities as we used to have, which may or may not have been good back in the old days, you know, back when I was a kid, I think I grew up to one by one and there's actually helicopters around all the time so that's one thing but without the appropriate mental health facilities it's the jails it's the police it's the jails i would say the vast majority of people that you interact with have some sort of mental issues and they need help right there were plenty of people that once you catch them they're probably happy to be caught and happy to go back to a structured environment which is generally safe and good and they understand right it works a certain way and i'm not saying it's perfect right but it's not like the movies so you go into a an environment that's they're used to that's structured that they have no structure 
right? They have they have no structure and drugs and everything right now and craziness and people pushing on them, people their needs. In jail, it's simple, right? They they know it and they get fed. They mostly get taken care of. It's a safe space in a way, and I can see why you would think that because that's how it is. And I think too, just sort of working with with juveniles a lot of those kids really looked up to the probation officers that worked with them and that a lot of times probation officers were the positive role models in their life and many of the kids that i worked with wanted to become probation officers when they grew (laughs) up i I never heard a kid say they wanted to become a cop but maybe you have i don't know no, but it, yeah, it, the probation officer. Yeah, we've worked. I've worked with probation officers a lot, serving warrants and you know finding the guys who probably not the best people that to use for example. But you know they had a different attitude towards than us. They're trying to help the person along to succeed in life. If they didn't succeed, then they need the cops to go pull them out. But uh, I can see how that could happen. It's just uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, especially when we're talking about you know. So having worked on the family side of things, like having been a family therapist and having seen sort of the environment that some of the people that I, I'm specifically speaking about teenagers now, some of the kids that I had worked with, there were times where I just understood that jail was better than staying home with a particular family that maybe abused them or neglected them. Um, and a lot of times the gangs were better. I, I'm, I know that sounds weird, but they were more supportive a lot of the times than the people who raised some of the kids I worked with. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the, in the you know, lower income neighborhoods, the gangs are there for a reason, right? I've seen, seen it. I've watched the movies, which it's not like the movies, but a little bit. I read a lot about it. I did read studies. I read books to see ex-gang members, and they're there for them, right? Yeah, they guess they got to commit some crimes because they're teenagers, mm-hmm. right? And it's not good, and they can be a blight on the community somewhat, but some of the families are horrible, right? You see families, you go into these houses that are just, it's beyond comprehension. Maybe if you watch cops and stuff and you've seen it, but actually being there in the houses that aren't being taken care of and the parents being completely out of it you know maybe on drugs maybe worse not there abusive in a horrible home what are kids gonna have right i think in one case i remember we were looking for a fugitive and it was interesting because usually you go look for a fugitive and you start asking around and no one wants to help you of course but we're looking for some lady and then someone said oh go here and we're like oh okay and we go to one location and then someone else says hey no no she's over there like wow everyone's being very helpful that's strange and we show up at a location and we take her into custody and she is, she's on fire. She's abusive and screaming and yelling. And she had two kids and it was sad. She had taken over a laundry room as a place to live. So the people in the apartment building couldn't take, do laundry. Surprisingly, she had a fridge full of food and two kids, teenagers, almost teenagers, a little younger, that were incredibly nice and helpful and nice to the police officers, even though we were arresting their mom. And I think we talked about that at some point, right? And I thought that was strange. You're like, hey, the mom's completely off a rocker, so bad that she's upsetting everyone else in the, you know, in the neighborhood that they would give her up to the police. And the kid's only response is to be better, right? That's a response that can happen. And that was for you to open my eyes to that. What choice do the kids have, 
right? When that's all they have, when it's over, off the rails nuts, how do they react, right? They can either completely break down or in the case of these kids, end up stronger in this case. So you mentioned earlier that you're a reserve officer and you just kind of talked about um, catching a fugitive. So what is it exactly that you do now or what have you been doing for your department? So I started out, of course, the backbone of the any police department is patrol. I work patrol in a in an urban, very urban <laughs> inner city environment for uh, about five years. And I had the chance to go to work a detective unit to work fugitive warrants. And I took to it. It was perfect or reserved. There's little court time because you can't be ditching work all the time to go to court. Um, you go in, you work your cases, look for track down fugitives on the computer, through phone calls, and then knocking doors and looking for them and arresting fugitives. And I did that. Uh, enjoyed that, did well at it, worked well with the reserve schedule, of work, only working part time a couple times a month, two, three, four times a month. So I've been doing that for probably 20 plus years now. So five years in patrol and 20 years in detectives working fugitives. And I, I, I'm sure I asked you this probably when I first met, I met you. Um, I'm guessing this is a question and you don't have to answer it that everybody <laughs> probably asks, but like, what is the worst thing you have ever seen as a police officer? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit salacious. I think, I mean, just overall, right, seeing the, the, the issues inside the inner city and how cities handle it and how people respond to it. I think everyone's trying to do the best job they can, but of course, government programs and competing issues cause problems. So the, the worst thing is probably the overall sadness. Not overall, the sadness you do see, right? So that's sad. You see a lot of at-risk, underappreciated, just people that are lost, and there's no, you don't see any real way they're going to get unlost, right? That's sad. But probably the worst single thing was just, I mean, I was probably a shooting in the inner city on a Saturday night. I was probably the second, second we're in the second car there and just seeing a, probably a three-year-old kid in diapers stumbling down the road and then stumbling, but the diapers and white t-shirt were covered, were red, covered in blood and stumble and fall like 10 feet in front of me as I ran up as we had to deal with the whole situation there. It was, that's a, sad it was a horrible thing to see but there were still shooters outstanding so you do your job secure the location get the medical help do everything you can luckily in this agency lots of officers show up to help out and do everything and the reason i think it might be the worst is because i was having dinner once with another officer on patrol who'd been there for 20 years and he was the first officer there and he said it's the worst thing he'd ever seen working full-time so sadly i had to see it too and it just still sticks in your mind sad and there's a lot more back front story to it of what ends up happening but just sad right you, you, it's a, a waste for no good reason no matter where you are or who you are so yeah that's pretty awful and and um what do you think about mental health for cops do you know people who go to therapy or are interested in therapy or have any <laughs> idea what therapy is <laughs> You know, it's it's a you know it is a, it's I call it kind of, it's it's a not a boys club, but it's kind of a high schooly club, right? <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying college is much better in my years in college, but uh, um, it's you know you have to, to be able to deal with the day in and day out. And again, I'd show up on weekends and I'd think it was fun and not so fun sometimes, and I'd work, but you know everyone else has to do it day in day out, 
And I think they just have to deal with it in their own way. And a lot of time it's, you know, kind of like gallows humor, you know, not taking anything too seriously, making jokes, which seems sad, but it's just dealing with it, dealing with the horrible things you have to see on a daily basis, especially in the mid nineties in a big city, right? During the drug and crime waves. And I think some people, I know some people did go to therapy, but there's a lot of, I call it a patrol car therapy and you talk it out. You talk it out with a guy, someone who knows you as you've been through it. You have, you tell war stories, you call it when you're together, maybe having drinks after shift and you talk about things you saw and kind of work through it. Not perfect, but I think it helped most people get through it and have a, have a, perspective on it right a realistic perspective i think there's in the end i i've got to see the the how i grew and how a lot of officers have grown over 20 plus years and go from the you know gung-ho go for it, bad guys bad guys bad guys arrest them to hey look at all these things they've went through that's kind of sad you know let's let's yes we have to process them and stop them from hurting other people and arrest them and go to court and go to jail but what most i'd say the vast majority of cops have a very good attitude once they get to that point of just hey i'm doing the part i can do the one cognitive wheel maybe i can do more sometimes maybe not but it's reality it's the world right and i think there are negative effects probably of people shutting off and you can't really talk to other people being only friends with some cops but uh i think most people handle it pretty well on their own and i know the department and the, luckily in the past decade or so it's lots of resources to help people and take the stigma out of it but yeah, I think it's 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 tough, but I think a lot of people handle it on their own in a realistic and healthy way. Luckily, what do you mean by shut down? You said they have this, that some shut down. Oh, I mean, kind of emotionally shut down. I mean, stop caring, right? And that's mm -hmm. kind of sad. See, I'd say that's in the minority. Someone just just really not caring about people. And truthfully, I have to think about think about it. You know, that didn't last. That ended up with them burning out, moving to a really a non-vital role where you don't have to deal with that as much, mm. leaving the department. So now that I think about it, the, you see people when they start shutting off of caring, it, it's hard to even do the job, right? You mm -hmm. can't, it's not, you, the movie trope is a guy who never cares and doesn't do anything or is just mean to people. And that doesn't last because you can't, either you'll lose your job or you'll, you can't do it because it's, it's, it's not in, in you if you're going to be, see horrible things and not care. You have to find other ways to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that the guys have sort of the similar personality traits, or does it is it all walks of life kind of like what have you observed? I think the people come from all walks of life, and you see a lot of different people, right? The family people, the single guys, the you know the woman who the single moms or super family moms, or you see everything, right? The 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 um, people who. Those, the exercise people exercise? <laughs> I'm, I'm only way to put people who just you know they they work out they they are into health and fitness and then they're cop right so i, I make fun because i could probably do better on that but <laughs> it's a uh, um what was the question again if you saw similar personality uh, traits or i think how people deal with it is all very similar okay i think i think there are some that find a way to deal with it quietly and there's ones that are more open about it. There's ones that try harder to do the right thing and be nicer and take everything to account than some other people. But I would say the on the whole swivel of how it could be, I'd say, you know, let's say the 360 circle of how you could react, I'd say everyone's probably within a 20 degree circle, 25 degree circle of how they deal with it, right? Just in a practical, realistic, understanding way. 
dictated by department policy and how everything's treated, right? I think I work at a relatively progressive department that's been through a lot and spent a lot of time trying to help people understand and make sure things happen in the in a way that makes sense for the officers, for the public, for the criminals, for everybody, right? For everyone in, in the system. I think when you have that and decent leadership and the right signals, I think you get more or less the right attitude from people. And what do you think... Or what do you see as the biggest issue for police officers nowadays? I mean, nowadays with the the defund the police and all the backlash to the various issues that have happened, yeah, it's I think the morale is there. Um, that comes down to the government workers that want their pensions. So, yes, they're going to do their job, the vast majority of them, and do the job the best they can because that's how they are. But I think, as we've seen, uh, I think the issue is how do you cut the how do you cut the line between making officers accountable and making sure they have to do the right thing and empowering them and supporting them to do their job right we've done the, we've gone the other way where we don't trust them we don't believe in them they're all wrong and we love having negative news stories of all the you know millions of interactions find the onesie twosie negative news stories and go after them and then the defunds start working and look what happened crime went up you know crime's gone up crime's gone up huge over covid sadly and I've seen this happen in two other somewhat smaller times back in the end of the 90s and then in the early aughts. And it's a, you know, it's a cycle, but I think it's enhanced now by the, obviously, the politicization and everyone being upset about this or that. And it's, uh, um, it's hard, right? I think to keep, how do you empower a worker to get their job done, right? I come, my other job is obviously in the corporate world. Well, not so obviously in the corporate world and a lot of process transformation. How do you do things right? Right? How do you, as a large organization, put things together and put set up the systems and the processes and empower your people and educate your people and train your people to do a job correctly? And that's the same thing for the police department. And I think responding politically to situations where you're bad, you're not doing anything right, don't do this, don't do that, don't arrest people, don't is the wrong message to send. And it doesn't empower your people to achieve their goals. The politicians and the public need to understand the goals, agree on goals, and find ways to make them happen, right? And I think the problem with government work sometimes is it just swings too far from left to right because it's it's hard to right the ship because there's so many bureaucracy is so large. I think um, we can. I think we're all sort of affected by obviously what's going on politically in the world right now, and I actually have cops who come to see me who are in therapy and um i know that they have certainly been affected by the politics and i wondered if you had seen that on your end as well yeah i mean i spoke to a little bit before about the morale you know when no one supports you in doing your job why do you do your job right no one supports you you're not empowered to do your job but i think it's tough like you hear about guys quitting a lot and some do i think some of that is more because they can't they're they're guys that want to do their job to find bad people arrest them do police work and they're not allowed to they're like well why am i doing it i'm gonna get out right but uh, um it affects them i think like i said after you're around for a while you've seen this happen more than once mm. and it's a little larger now with the social media of course but uh it affects your mental health but i think most have been through it um I think I've seen some younger cops, right, that have come on. I, we work with them sometimes, and they're just like, I think they're 
at both, they're a little resilient. They're like, oh, I guess this is the way it is. And they find a way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And also like, geez, I can't believe this is what we have to deal with. You know, I just started this job and, you know, and they're treating me like this. But I think compared to all the other things they see on the street and the sadness and life that they have to deal with on a day in, day out basis. I mean, I guess maybe I'm given where I work. It's a little more so than most places. But given the sadness you have to see day in, day out, the public not supporting you is just kind of icing on the cake. Right? Mm. I think it's stuff that, to me, most cops have dealt with. They're not happy about it, complain about it. Everyone loves complaining. But uh, I think they've dealt with it in a general sense pretty well overall, given mm-hmm. the larger issues at hand. Mm-hmm. So do you think that your particular job has changed over the years at all in terms of like what you've been seeing on the streets or is it pretty much the same? I think obviously, I think when I started, obviously I did my patrol time during the, they call it the roaring nineties. Things were murders and everything crazy and gang violence was up. And so it was a lot of work to help figure out the right way to tap that down. Uh, I think it finally started going down. So that was a good thing. And so I think people, I think crime, they're mostly the same. But I think now we've changed what we've gone after, right? Before there were thousands of, of drug possession warrants. And it's still a felony warrant. They, they were caught with drugs, with, with a felony amount of drugs. They had to go to court. They didn't go to court, so you have to go find them, right? Thousands of those. Those were kind of bread and butter work. You have to go through a lot of those. And obviously now with legalization and decriminalization, then there's less of that and you don't care about it. And I think that leads to, not that I agreed with all of them going to jail all the time over minor possession beefs, but people that get caught for having drugs, usually for a reason, they're doing something else wrong, they're being bad. So now there's more bad people out there doing more bad things because we're not enforcing the smaller things. I wish there was a, I would, I'd rather hit this from a mental health and treatment perspective, from a larger perspective, but just the way we've done it by just letting them all out and not arresting them just means there's more people out there that are unstable, mentally ill, mentally hurt. They're just going to do more crazy things. And that's what we're seeing now out in the news. And you're finally getting through and seeing it out for real. Yeah. And I I think there is also um, some talk about like, we're supposed to distinguish different groups, right? Like there are the mentally ill and there are the addicts, right? And they're ho- and then there are the homeless. And, and that I think a lot of times it sounds like people are trying to put everybody into a separate category. And my experience has been that these most people sort of cross into several different <laughs> categories, right? Yeah. It's like mentally ill people are not necessarily drug free and right. <laughs> people who are addicts are not mental health, <laughs> mental illness free, right? I mean, it's like, it, it's sort of interesting um, that if somehow, and, and maybe it's just my perception, but it always feels like if police were just more educated about the mentally ill that they could go out there and they could understand that somebody was schizophrenic and get them the appropriate treatment rather than dealing with them physically. And the thing is, like, I've been attacked by a psychotic person, not in a criminal way, like me doing my job working with them one day, and, and I got attacked. And 
I don't blame the person for that because I understood their diagnosis very well, but that didn't change the fact that I was freaking scared <laughs> and wished that I had some way of preventing that attack. Um, and so I don't know what you might want to say about that. I mean, yeah, you're, I think you're right. Obviously, you're right. It, it all crosses over, right? They're mentally ill, and then because of the mental illness, then they turn to drugs because it's easy to escape, and it's fun, right? And it's all out there. And the, 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 there is a whole subclass of, I guess, criminals. But people, And by the time the police get there, the problem is these people have already gone off the deep end to call the police. He's already outside screaming. He's hurting somebody. He's scaring people. Yeah. They're doing something wrong, right? robbing a place and getting caught that's when the police are called so yes so the police get there it's already turned into a situation that you have to deal with and on the street though looking for fugitives when they're not necessarily committing a crime you're just looking for them to take them to court and they yeah and you see it all the, the homeless i've done plenty looked at done worked on all the different homeless places looking for criminals that happen to be homeless for fugitives that happen to be homeless and they're all have multiple issues right and and, I, and if I had to separate it all out, I think there's a lot of people. I'd say I call it 50% of, of the criminals are have that issue. You have another 25% are like the fraudsters, the, the slick fraudsters that are always running and doing cons, and they're surprisingly hard to catch. And then, you know, and then like maybe the, the serious gang members doing serious crimes, surprisingly without too many drugs or mental illness, but having a very unhappy way of looking at life given from their gang member perspective, right? Right. So, Which would be more like on the depressive side of probably, things, right? Probably. They're more like depressed yeah. or... Yeah. yeah. So, again, my numbers are very rough. I don't, don't hold me to them. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it is it is sort of interesting, though, because, you know, it's like one of the things that I know to be true about people who have auditory hallucinations is that a lot of times um, the drugs help to stop it. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people self-medicate with illegal drugs <laughs> right which many are now legal but um you know instead of getting into that psychiatrist appointment because truthfully it's very expensive to do that it's it's probably i mean i don't know the numbers but it's like i'm sure it's easier to get illegal drugs than it is to yep. like go to a psychiatric appointment pay for said psychiatric appointment and then get a script and go fill it you know, I mean, on the other side of that, is it as a society, which again, overall, this is sad, but do you, if somebody is psychotic, um, mentally ill, would you rather have them shot up in drugs in their tent or on the side of the street, happily being shot up, self medicating in a, you know, in an abandoned building, or running down the middle of the street screaming and yelling and scaring kids? Yeah. Right. It's it's. Do I have to choose? <laughs> I don't know. I just. I mean, I'm just thinking about this now. Right. Yeah. It, which it, it, at least they're getting some. Uh, it's horrible. At least they're getting something, so they're not out all the time, which ends up them going to jail, getting hurt. You know, getting stopped a whole other way by the police, by someone else. So yeah, I, the drugs. I don't think it's a moral issue. It's it's just there. It's they they have issues. They need needs, and we're not meeting their needs as society. So the drugs for now are what they got. Yeah. Yeah. And then then we have other consequences of that on the other end. So it's you know, I think that that's I, I think that's the thing that's bothersome for me is there's so much armchair quarterbacking about what should be done 
very it's always a very simple explanation as if these issues are not complicated and these issues are very complicated and very tough to solve and but there's a lot of people with sort of like one sentence answers to <laughs> all of this i'd have to say the you know the hundreds if not thousands of people i've arrested over a long time is they're they want they're not evil like i said they don't have horns you know, I've met some people that were serious criminals, but they were depressed more than anything. I think the vast majority, like I said, the 50% of the mentally ill, they're not trying. They don't want to run around and scare people. I don't feel like right. they're mentally ill. They're trying to deal with their problems. And you arrest them once they're handcuffed and maybe not so high or going to jail. Then they're kind of, like I said, they're kind of, we talked about this a second, a little while ago. They're almost relieved. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to be okay for a while. Now, yeah. Right. Hey, when do I get out? When I have this, can I call my girlfriend? Can I do this? Can I do that? Right. They're they're very practical once it happens. They understand the ride, and I almost feel like I'd have to. And this is a guess, of course, supposition, but they don't want to run back out and scare people and be crazy. They they are dealing with the pain of their issues of something they have to deal with. The drugs are there, and between the mental illness and the drugs, it sometimes ends up in lashing out and craziness. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to do that. Right. You in the moment, you may have no choice but to take them to custody in you know, whatever way you have to. But I've always felt like when you when you finally when you're the, the ride to jail and the long booking process and everything, they generally the 95 percent of them aren't fighting. They're like, OK, OK. And they're almost not I wouldn't say happy, but they're in a calmer place than when they were on the street going crazy. Yeah. So we've been talking about a lot of kind of sad experiences, <laughs> I guess, for both of us. And I wondered if you had any, I don't know, good heartwarming <laughs> stories that um, that would kind of like make us see another perspective. <laughs> I think a lot of I think a lot of full time officers probably have more stories than I do in this realm, right? Just be showing up once or twice a week and doing things. But uh, um, I think one was I said before when the first when I first started working fugitive warrants, and one of the first arrests we made was. I get one of those 50% of drug warrants. It was a possession of old, like probably several years old, but still still a crime, still in the court system, still on the list, right? Especially for the new team to go look for. And we went to knock on this lady's door. It was a older, not older yet, you know, probably in her early 50s, late 40s. And we go to the door and she, she's all, oh. And she's all, okay. And she just resigned, not mad, not upset, resigned. Yelled to her husband, not in a mean way. Just like, hey, you know, I have this old warrant for the drugs, I got to go. And it turned out she was a recovering heroin addict, right? Mm-hmm. She's all, you know, I'm happy to just take care of this. You know, she didn't look like in the best of health, but she wasn't, she was recovering. She was in an apartment. She had a job. And we're like, okay, we can, these things get cleared up pretty quick. You know, you go in for jail for a day. You can either bail out. They'll probably release you in the morning and go to court and take care of the warrant, right? They probably won't charge you. It'll just be over. And so we take her, but ends up, she go, comes out with a, we have them take their meds, right? So the, the jail doctor can take care of them. And she comes out with a huge bag of a little Ziploc bag of meds. Like, oh, cool, right? We got to take her to the jail doctor and go. And we take her to the jail doctor. And she does her time with the jail doctor. And she comes out and goes, <sighs> again, not excitedly or anything, but thankfully said, hey, thanks for saving my life. You saved my life. And we're like, what are you talking about? Well, being on assistance, not having great help. She was on multiple different drugs from multiple different clinics or doctors. And two of them were conflicting with her, right? And actually oh, causing sick. her, yeah, causing her to be sick and possibly die. And the, the one doctor who saw everything, the jail doctor who got to see everything all in one place, saw it, put it together, and 
as far as we know, she was okay. She thanked us and cleared her case and cleared her warrant and, <laughs> and it worked out. And it seems silly, right? It's a small thing, you know, but, you know, someone who had fought heroin, fought whatever problem she had, made through it. And uh, in a weird, strange way, the, an old police warrant coming back to haunt her ended up saving her life. So I thought that was kind of, I, I just still remember that from being probably 15 years ago, right? Just mm. a, kind of a sweet thing. I remember her, not again, not the sweetest person in the world, but thankful and honest and fighting to make a life for herself after going through drugs and whatever else she had to go through. Mm. So can you take us out with a story that would be maybe surprising to listeners that um, is not at all like what they would see <laughs> as pursued in Hollywood on TV or in movies. <laughs> pursued, pursued. Yeah, that that brings up something. There is a lot of paperwork for police work. They call it three minutes of excitement and three hours of paperwork, probably more depending. And so your reaction to things, your learned, trained reaction isn't what you would think on TV. I think one night we had a pursuit, chasing somebody, I don't remember what for, chasing them, we're a vehicle pursuit, chasing them down the street in the middle of the night. And we're like, you know, you call an airship and they're chasing them. You have other cars with you. You're trying to do, safely catch them and follow them and get them for whatever serious thing that he did. And in this case, he was driving down the street, bouncing off cars. Every 10th car, he'd bounce off a car and break a car and break a window. And to us, you would think that's very serious. We need to catch him faster. But to us, that's like, that's a paperwork for every time he hits someone. Like, oh my God, we're dead. This is game over. We're going to be working for the next three days on paperwork just to follow up with every single case. And it's like, and it was, and, it had, and he probably hit 50 cars and we're chasing him. We're just getting, every time he hit a car, we just cringed and got more scared. And, and yes, we're chasing him. Yes, we're coordinating with the airship. Yes, we're watching for whatever he's doing wrong. But yeah. And then we chased him like that for a while and being scared, scared, scared. He pulled up in the gas station and passed out and we luckily formed a plan took him to custody safely no one got hurt and there was the paperwork <laughs> i think we got mitigated to a point with help from others and other reasons and other technical law reasons but the whole time we're in a high-speed pursuit chasing somebody wanted for a serious crime we were just cringing every time he hit a car a parked car because he was drunk of course and just scared about all the paper we'd have to do yeah. so yeah, fear of paperwork. Yes, fear of paperwork is a very, very major fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to thank you for your time and thanks for sharing your stories with us. And thank you for having me and thanks, thanks for the wine. You're you welcome. Know, if you maybe do this in a real bar someday, that would work. Too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Impolite Psychologist.